Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Literary Salon has been a tradition at LitFest, featuring three or more speakers with varying perspectives on a theme, along with audience participation. Two novelists and three screenwriters square off in this fiction versus film smackdown between opposing, or are they, cultural forces. They'll talk about the strengths and shortcomings of each storytelling mode in an attempt to articulate which, prose or cinema, is the superior narrative medium of our time. Tonight's panel is the Fiction versus Film Smackdown. We have a couple of double agents on the panel, but I'm not going to name names. Um, I am just going to... Okay. <laughs> I am just going to briefly introduce the panel, because they don't really brag on themselves. I think they're going to introduce themselves, too. But I might in- introduce them. That does sound some. like bragging. <laughs> sound like bragging. Um, so starting with Mr. Nick Arvin, who, you know... He's written three books, all of which are excellent. The Reconstructionist is the most recent, Articles of War, and um, In the Electric Eden, one of my favorite short story collections. Um, Just because it's short doesn't mean it's in any way deficient. Um, (laughs) He's won all these arts and letters awards. He's the guy. He's, He's in the New Yorker. Just Nick. Nick Arvin over there. David Robleski ha- is familiar with the longer form. He has, <laughs> he has written um, the story of Edgar Sattel, which is a saga that I highly recommend. He is delivering, as we speak, the next book, for those of you who have been waiting. Um, a person named Oprah selected him, and then... After she selected him, she shut the whole thing down because she couldn't get any better. Um, So, Mr. David Robleski. Um, Pamela Ribbon, who we brought here for screenwriting, I have since learned, is also a novelist and a memoirist and one of the funniest people I've ever heard in my life. I think I ruptured a spleen. Or do you only have one spleen? I ruptured my spleen. Uh, I, I almost had a seizure when she was reading yesterday. She's hilariously funny. She also wrote, wrote for um, Samantha Who. Yes. Which is, I mean, who, what, where, and when, and why. All of those. <laughs> and she also um, had the cult sensation Call Us Crazy, the Anne Heche monologues. Miss Pamela Ribbon. And this is, this is the book she read from yesterday that was sadly unavailable. It is now available back in the bookstore, as are David and Nick's what books. It is called Notes to Boys. And other things I should not, not share in public. But she will. She will. And we're so glad. Alexander Philippe, who is a filmmaker. My voice got really high. Is that the French pronunciation? That is the French pronunciation. And um, he did several films. He doesn't want me to talk about the um, headless chicken, so I'm not going to. Nor we're not going to talk about that. But he, 
He, uh, it is awesome. It's a cult classic, just like yeah, the Anne Heche monologues. <laughs> um, so he did The People vs. George Lucas, which you might have on your Netflix queue, and if you don't, you should. He also did the Paul the Psychic Octopus yeah. expose. Um, he did Doc of the Dead, which if you haven't seen it, you need to see it. And right now, he's working on... Uh, 7852, which is a feature doc about the shower scene in Psycho. And, and I would have said that, but math is not my thing. <laughs> so I'm very excited. He did a deconstruction frame by frame, starting with the credit, the, the initial logo frame. And then, and then he, he let it play for one second. And then he stopped again on the very first actor, which was... was it? Who was it? Well, we had, we had Janet Lee, actually. We had Janet Lee. And we talked about her. Quite a bit. Quite a bit. But first there were buildings. And, and there were buildings. There were buildings and there was the Paramount logo. Last but not least, one of all of our collective favorite people, Jenny Taylor Whitehorn. She's done so much stuff. I don't even, I feel like we would all feel smaller if I listed every single thing. But one thing I will tell you is I needed her to teach a screenwriting class um, this last session. And it was like, it was like a, just a pleasure cruise to read her evaluations because she's so amazing. She's done all this development work. She's got her degree in television and movies. <laughs> it's it's from Canada. They do things differently there, and it's not off the top of my head. It's not because it isn't special. <laughs> they do, and she's going to be leaving us for UCLA uh, Film School, which makes me sad but happy. Sad but happy. Are we all sad but happy for Jenny Teller Whitehorn? I think I've done enough. <laughs> Thank you, Andrea. Uh, so I was asked to moderate this panel because uh, I guess I'm sort of responsible for it. I, I pr- proposed the idea uh, for this panel or salon, whatever you want to call it. Smackdown. Smackdown <laughs> is the right term. Um, and uh, so w- w- I've asked everybody to um, you know to talk about themselves and their sort of their relationship to this topic um, briefly. Um, and then, uh, you know, I've got some questions uh, to get the conversation going, um, but they don't even know what those questions are. Uh, but I, I told them to come ready to argue and <laughs> to, um, I, mean, I, I really want, I, I mean, I'm a fiction writer. I've, I've loved books um, for, for all my life, and I really feel like books are a better way to tell a story. Um, <laughs> Uh, Thank you and good night. <laughs> uh, but I also, I mean, so first of all, I want to say, like, my ideal vision of this panel, we would have 15 people up here. We'd have somebody for graphic novels. We'd have somebody for video games. We'd have somebody, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but then we'd, we'd be here for a week talking about it. Um, I also, uh, you know, I, f- I feel like people... Um, People spend a lot of time looking at screens, uh, and one of the things that I tell my students is, you know, you need to be aware that that people, um, 
watch a lot of movies. They watch a lot of TV shows. That's the way they receive a lot of stories. And if you're writing fiction, you need to think about that. You need to think about, um, you know, what are the advantages of that form versus the advantages of the form you're working in, in fiction. And, and how do you take advantage, how do you, you know, how, how do you take advantage of the, the form that you're working in? How, how do you make fiction work the best for you? Um, and in a, in a more macro sense, if these two forms are competing with each other for people's attention, you know, what, what's the direction that you want to see fiction move in? Um, so those, those are things that I tell f- students to, talk ab- to think about. Um, you know, I think that those kinds of questions can inform your work. Um, and I hope that those kinds of questions uh, will, will be kind of the deeper uh, issue that we'll discuss tonight. Um, so that's, that's all I'm going to say about this. I'm going to ask everybody to, to introduce themselves briefly, their, their relationship to this topic, and then, uh, and then we'll get it rolling. And at the end, um, if you could flag me at an appropriate time, Andrew, we'll, we'll have the audience start. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> We'll, um, we'll have the audience ask some questions as well. All right, David? So this is my three minutes? This is your three minutes. All right, I'm not going to bother to introduce myself. Uh, because this is a smack... props. This, <laughs> so uh, since this is a smackdown, I just want to get to the smack. <laughs> so this is addressed to film... Not any one particular person. And what I did this morning is I took an hour and I just went through some books and I pulled out individual sentences. Uh, and I, uh, the th- I'm going to quote some times here, which are based on how long it would take to read this sentence at the average reading rate. Uh, according to Wikipedia, it's between 250 and 300 words a minute. So here's, here, here we're just going to go through some sentences and I'll make a couple of comments. Once upon a time, there was a man who asked himself, where have all the days and nights of my life gone? 22 words, five seconds. That's William Maxwell, short story. All the days and nights. Film can't do that. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. Charles Dickens, Tale of Two Cities, 85 words, 17 seconds. All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. 14 words, 3 seconds, Leo Tolstoy. They wandered the border. This is two sentences. I cheated. They wandered the borderland for weeks, seeking some sign of the Apache. Deployed upon that plane, they moved in a constant elision, ordained agents of the actual, dividing out the world which they encountered, and leaving what had been and what would never be alike extinguished on the ground behind them. That is 51 words, 10 seconds, Cormac McCarthy, Blood Meridian. Here's one that's really great. The sun balanced on the horizon and cast a street of dazzle over the water, and the distant figure resolved itself into a woman in a bikini top stooping to collect stones. That's 31 words, 5 seconds, written by Nick Arvin in a book called The Reconstructionist. Film, film thinks it can do that, and I say, isn't it pretty to think so? <laughs> Neighbors bring food with death and flowers with sickness and little things in between. 
Boo was our neighbor. He gave us two soap dolls, a broken watch and chain, a pair of good luck pennies, and our lives. Harper Lee, To Kill Mockingbird, 38 words, 7 seconds. Instead of an actual heart, she had one of those have-a-heart traps. The rats get in, and they stay in. Erica Krauss, Contenders, 22 words, 4 seconds. Lolita, light of my life, fire of my loins, my sin, my soul. Lolita, the tip of the tongue taking a trip of three steps down the palate to tap at three on the teeth. 37 words, 7 seconds, Debokov, Lolita, of course. And last example, for this example, I want you to think of every screen kiss in the history of cinema that you've seen and then compare it to this. Then I asked him with my eyes to ask again, yes, and then he asked me, would I yes, to say yes, my mountain flower, and first I put my arms around him, yes, and drew him down to me so he could feel my breasts all perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad, and yes, I said yes, I will, yes. That's 64 words, 12 seconds, James Joyce, the end of Ulysses, and film can't even get into the same building as that. I'm done. Well done. Man, if I had known we could have had this kind of smackdown, I'm. Uh, here's what I have in response. I think that went well. That's terms of endearment. How many seconds was that? Uh, and there's kisses that need no words. Here's Johnny. How long was that? <laughs> then I was like, we could just do Jack Nicholson. <laughs> but I want to actually address you first, because maybe I'm there 15 people in the room. And this is not bragging, but I want you to know. Books, fiction, memoir, TV, film, anime, stage shows, sketch comedy for both stage and screen... Uh, graphic, novel. graphic novel, thank you. People have been taking my classes. Yeah. Interpretive dance? Well, th- that was high school. Okay. It was to Nine Inch Nails. It was memorable. But I would say that no matter what we're looking for, and no matter what medium we're using, what we're looking for is this feeling right here. So how is the best way to feel like I'm talking to you, but I'm also talking to all of you? That's it. That's my three names. So I'll go, I'll go back and forth, but this sort of smackdown, I've got really defensive on films and... Oh, animation. I work in animation. Yeah. There we go. Where they don't want any words ever. Well, I'm glad I came prepared, David. Um, so, I, I, you know, I'm going to start by saying that obviously this is kind of a pointless exercise in the sense that, you know, I'm, I'm going to just sort of play Swiss like neutral for a second. Um, you know, the, I mean, come on, let's, let's admit that the world would be poor without literature, but it will also be poor without film, right? Let's, let's just start there. I think that's a good place to start. However, now that that's been said, um, and, and I will say this aside from the communal experience that cinema provides that, that, that literature cannot, 
provide in any way. And the fact that cinema engages the senses in a way that, if, you know, several senses in addition, of course, to the eyes and the mind that, you know, that, that literature cannot. Um, here's one thing. You can certainly write Heart of Darkness, but you cannot write Brando playing Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now. You can't write that. You cannot write Toshiro Mifune in Seven Samurai. You cannot possibly write Rutger Auer in Blade Runner. You can't write a fully realized design, composed and sound design vision like David Lynch's in Eraserhead. You can't write light the way that Roger Deakins or Greg Toland actually shot it. You can't write, of course, a shower murder as visceral... You knew it had to come without music by Bernard Herrmann and editing by George Tomasini. I mean, if you remember the one sort of missing frame, that that sort of jump cut where she gets thrown against the wall. I mean, if you want to talk about, you know, how much time it takes to have that, that is like one frame missing, one frame missing, one twenty fourth of a second. You can't, of course, possibly write the Imperial Destroyer in Star Wars the way that kids experienced it in 1977 on the big screen. And I will also argue, with all due respect to James Joyce, that you can't write Cary Grant kissing Ingrid Bergman in Notorious or Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall into Have and Have Not. So that, that sort of visceral immediacy, and of course, how can I forget the final, you know, the final shot of Vertigo? that encompasses that one image that encompasses the entire movie and that hits you in the gut in a way that words really, truly can't. So, but most importantly, you know, it's this idea that, um, and I was actually interviewing Walter, Walter Murch a few weeks ago, and he was talking about, Walter Murch is the editor of Apocalypse Now and The English Patient and all these extraordinary films, uh, won three Oscars. And, uh, you know, he was telling me about this research that had been done in Japan recently uh, of... Um, that when you're in a theater and when you're, when you're under the spell of a movie, people start blinking in unison. And so the blink becomes uh, an emotional response to what you're actually seeing happening on the screen. And I think if, you know, if nothing else, the most beautiful thing to me about movies is this idea that we can actually experience story together at the same time and feel it together at the same time. I rest my case. <laughs> That was a good take. Um, I came prepared with a really nice opening about how I like to write screenplays versus how I like versus fiction and fiction's fun, but I like screenplays. But obviously, it's not going that way so far. Um, so I'll have to think on the fly. Um, and I do think it's interesting how David's little list included How to Kill a Mockingbird. And I think there were some other ones, but they were made into movies. And I think it's important to look at like that there are a lot of screenplays that are made that are just movies, and they don't get made into books. And I think with books, there might be something missing that we need to transfer to film. And, you know, there's always something left that hasn't been said, and that needs to be said through the lens of actors and directors and casting directors and all these different other storytellers at a different level, like to piggyback on what you were saying. So, you know, I'm just going to rev up here a second, David, because I didn't realize I had a very lovely speech prepared, but, you know, it's on. So here we go. <laughs> well, and, the, and that goes double for comedy, what you're saying, that group experience. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Sorry. Sorry. I stepped on your applause. How terrible. All right, let's give her an applause. You know, you know when you want to watch a, a movie that there are times that you decide, I want to see this on a big screen. I want to see this with people. This is an experience. And uh, our books, we keep like, I'm going to take this. <laughs> and I know the place where I want to read it. But it's you. It's you alone with the words. And uh, there's something to be said for that sound of the group taking you through it together. I was was thinking a lot about um, just that cliche, the book is always better than the movie, right? Everybody knows that. What do you you mean? What do you mean, cliche? (laughs) (laughs) Is that a French word? (laughs) I think it's been proven mathematically, hasn't it? Um, That was my understanding. (laughs) And, I mean, you kind of, like, I I would argue that, that the movies, you know, duplicate the books because that that whole industry is so lacking in imagination and original I go back to the they, they, No, no, you go, you go. They, they, I just immediately back to the shining. We can just stick with the shining but also Fight Club? Yeah. The book I mean but it's not that it, but that movie is not a pale comparison to the book, right? That is its own artistic serious vision. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if we're going to go below the belt, you know, I mean... That's a different kind I'm of I'm going to say, you know, so why are we saying, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words? Show me the picture. Show me I the mean, picture. Show me the picture that can say that. The last image of... Yeah, the last image of... Of what? The last image in Billy Elliot. I could not even walk or contain my body for three days. I couldn't make it through that movie, so I'm Well, sorry. I mean, look, I mean... The, 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 you know, I mean, you look at look at the image of, uh, uh, you know, the famous Iwo Jima picture. Uh, you know, there was like, OK, if you get into if you want to get into this, then you have to start. You know, look, we have to start talking about Henri Cartier-Bresson, the French photographer. Oh, he's going to try out moments. some French now. Yeah, of course. <laughs> like of course. we're going to be scared by this. <laughs> <laughs> bring it on. Yes, I'm bringing it on. Exactly. This idea of the decisive moment. Right. And, and this is so brilliant to me that he was, you know, here he was with his camera. You know, and and he saw, he started seeing the sort of moment that was about to happen, and and he was known for pouncing on the moment when it happened, the moment that would actually tell a story. His theory, and in fact Walter Murch's theory, is that it is that one frame that tells the story. It is not the frame that is after it or the frames that precedes that that precedes it. It is that one frame that tells the story. And so when you get that decisive moment, I mean, you think about these images in history, these extraordinary photographs. So you know, you think about JFK being assassinated. You think about actually Lee Harvey Oswald being assassinated. I mean, these images that are imprinted on our psyche in such a powerful way. Those images tell a story, but it is the right frame that tells that story, and that is so powerful to me. Um, <laughs> I, so, the thing, so, I mean, this is a subjective thing, but to me, like, I hear everything you're saying, and, and images, images are very powerful to me, Ultimately, the image that I create in my mind has is has the most power. the The image you know um, that that arises in my mind as as a part of the process of reading um, Cormac McCarthy or Moby Dick or whatever, because it's um, you know it hasn't been reified. It hasn't been distilled into a 
an image, it's um, it's more powerful for me because it only exists in my mind. Is that because you like yourself as a storyteller? I don't mean that shitty, but like you like yourself as a storyteller, so you like where your imagination goes and you trust your mind's vision. I think it, it inherently speaks to me in a way that you know that anything external can't. You know, it 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 because it's you know filtered through through me. Can I ask the girl in the okay okay shirt, <laughs> since she's literally wearing her a book movie? How did you feel? Yeah, I'm just assuming you saw the film. How did you feel? She cried more at the movie than the books. <laughs> I mean, I mean, we're humans. <laughs> how could you not? There's something about seeing people it, that that is that is different for us when the image is in front of you. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> What it's is being manipulative? Sure. Are you using manipulative in a terrible way? <laughs> or do you I think the term was shitty, crafty, wasn't it? Crafty. <laughs> being cra- your well, craft. In that context, absolutely. Well, yeah, but I think there's... I think that what you're saying really is that there's a responsibility in crafting an image. But I think that's true of both film and, and literature, quite frankly, because when you craft a powerful image, it has resonance. I mean, it creates ripples, right? Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, well, that wasn't the question. She used that as the gauge of which which one affected her more. So she said the movie made me cry more. Right, and in books, when you're writing an image, you choose what to refer to in the image based on how you want the reader to feel. Yeah. Understand what the characters feel. So which you... that manipulation different? Than... Exactly. Uh, yeah, I cried yeah. through the end of where the red fern grows. That's manip- <laughs> That could be manipulated, you know. Yeah. I I don't. I mean, I think both forms are inherent. The, the 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 person who's experiencing a story through a film or a book is asking to be manipulated, right? I mean, um, you're, you're you're asking to be put into a story. You're asking to, I think, in a book especially, you're you're asking to experience somebody else's point of view to experience. In either, in any of the case, you're you're expanding, asking to see a different world than you're used to. Um, but I, yeah, I mean. There's a George Saunders story that makes me cry every time I finish it. I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, can I can I can yeah, I suggest in. something? Uh, I, I think in order to think about this clearly, you have to define two words. One is what is a story? What is a story? And the other is what does it mean for it to be better? Mm-hmm. Right. So I have a definition that I use of a story, which is this: a story is a machine that makes another person experience a waking dream. And on that level, film and fiction are exactly equivalent because they are both machines. You turn them loose on their own, they do what they do. And they either make you cry or make you happy. or They have the effect they have. You're out of the room. They're, they operate like a robot almost. Uh, so I think the harder question, though, is what does it mean to be better? And the only way to answer that is to think about the... It's biased to say audience member or reader, but let's, so let's just say audience member to mean both. To, to think 
carefully about what is happening with the audience member because we tend to lump them as these individual things like they're, you can't think about how they work inside. But that's not, um, that's not the state of the art, basically, in thinking about readers or audience members. Um, we're very complicated. We respond at a number of levels to a number of different things, including the fact that we can be primed uh, to almost see something and not know it until we see it and so on. And each of these media ha- mediums, I guess you'd say, has their own set of tricks for priming you and then triggering what was what was primed, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, you know, again, I think it's a tie on, on those things. But where it's not a tie is, to me, is a question of, again, I think of an audience, somebody in the audience, a reader, somebody in the audience, as not a single person, but as a set of nested Russian dolls, okay? You guys know what I'm talking about? They're called Maratrushka dolls, I think is how you say it. And um, the person you want to talk to is the innermost doll. And that's the person who cares about the meaning of life, the one who wants to have the hard questions answered, why, you know, why do bad things happen to good people, things like that. And if you try and talk directly to that innermost doll, it, it's not going to work because you can't just bring that up. It's like bringing it up at a cocktail party. People <laughs> edge away from you. And... <laughs> I'm not speaking from experience. The, I've just heard that that doesn't work. Um, what, what, in fact, you have to do is appeal to each of the successive shells. And the outer shell cares about certain things. And until that outer shell is satisfied that you know what you're talking about, about that thing, can you talk to the next one in? And, at, and you have to convince that one. And you have to convince the next one and the next one. And the art of telling a story to make the machine work, is to simultaneously convince all these shells to open up to let you talk to the next one in. And you have to keep them all satisfied at once until then, finally, you get to the innermost doll and you can start having the real conversation. And it can take an entire novel to get there. It can take several novels to get there. Um, and then you, then you have a brief moment to say what you have to say, and then you, something goes wrong and they start snapping shut again. Okay? And on that level, I think fiction is better than film because fiction takes time. Fiction is the medium where you do go away by yourself. And it, when you are alone, having a relationship with that text, you're reading it, you have time to think about it, you, uh, you go to sleep. Fiction novels are the only art form that I know of in which you are... It's intended that you fall asleep in the middle of your experience. And it's absolutely, absolutely essential to the effect that a novel has. People, every, occasionally people come up to me and say, I read your novel start to finish in one day, and, and my, uh, my instant reaction is, I'm really sorry to hear that. Because, because I don't say that. Because then people edge away too. But um, there's something about that the having the experience of falling asleep reading a story or having slept when you wake up you're in a different state and now you're ready to read what comes next and really artfully made fiction plays into that experience and one of the things that i mean i love film obviously it's my second favorite art form no really um uh one of the things that though that is distressing to me is that i don't understand how film uh except in some weird experimental 
experimental mode that goes a long, for a long time can get access way down deep. I know it can talk to the superficial things. I love spectacle. I'm a visual thinker. But I don't see how it can speak to that inner person. And I'll just I'll wrap it up by just saying, I, when I look at it, and the reason why I'm on this side of the panel, is I think about what form has changed my life most frequently. And it, it, of course it's fiction, but I think it's fiction because of that effect, that ability to drive down deeper and deeper and deeper. Done. Thanks. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, and, and of course I, I can't disagree with you on a certain level, right? I mean, I don't think any of us can. But, but this idea that, that, that there is no, and perhaps I'm exaggerating, but that there is no, film doesn't have the depth that literature has, I think is, is wrongheaded. I think that I could, be, I could be watching Lynch over and over and over again and get deeper and deeper and deeper in there. And it's, it is, you know, the thing that's so amazing about it is not just the images, but it's the connection within those images and how they speak to each other. It's, it's all the elements that make film what it is. It is, you know, you, you, you have to go back now to Eisenstein and, and the, the, the Russian avant-garde and the way that they started thinking about the relationship between images and the story that lies between those frames and what that tells you and how it can be interpreted in so many different ways. You know, it's... Um, it's it's an extraordinary process to me. I feel that the great films, the great films, there's a, there's a magic there that you know. I mean, it is of course my number one medium, uh, but but there's a magic a magic that is so intangible. We were talking about this actually just on the porch that you know the Gus Van Sant version of Psycho, right? Which some of you may have seen, 1998 remake of of the classic film. You know, they actually shot the shower scene shot for shot. They used the soul bass storyboards and they reshot it the way Hitchcock did. And then they actually edited it the way that Hitchcock did. Guess what? It didn't work. It didn't work because there's a magic there. And the magic is this extraordinary collaborative process. And it's the people who are there and when they're there and what they do at that particular time. And that that cannot be duplicated. And it's so difficult, you know. It's like, imagine, like, when you're writing a piece of fiction, you can envision it, and when you're at your best, you can put it down on paper, right? It happens. You may be Hitchcock. You may be Kurosawa. You may be one of the great filmmakers. You have this vision of what this great film is going to be, but something's going to go wrong on that set. How they make those miracles time after time after time is a testament to how incredible they are. You know, it's, it really is, film truly at that level is, is, is a miracle. So. That's awesome. Um, I'm going to have to leave the really artistic, beautiful stuff to Alexander on this side of the panel because that was very nicely done. But I also think, like David's talking about time, and I think that in kind of the modern days that we're in right now, that the time to read a novel and the time to get into a novel and like get lost in one just doesn't really exist the same way anymore. And I think that like the filmmaker's problem is to like, you know, how we have to tell a story that gets to all your nesting dolls. <laughs> um, like in the in a shorter amount of time. And like I think to um film reaches I mean, it's a different audience and I mean it's the same audience a lot of the times, but I think like they like there's an opportunity to reach such a, a vast amount or uh, uh, way bigger audience just because they're so 
like it takes so much less time to watch a movie and not to say that that feeling that you're talking about doesn't last like after you're done watching the film or that you know you won't forget a scene forever like every alexander remembers everything <laughs> like i think so like i yes it touches your <laughs> in, inner nesting doll but i think like you know when you're talking about time i think we have that's to think against about- the law in a lot of states <laughs> but i think like when you're talking about time we really have to think about like you know what the average like person who wants to hear a story and wants to feel things from a story like what they can do like you know what an audience like has the time for and I really think that film um, is a better way to tell a story in that sense that you know we can reach a wider range of people just because they don't have to take the time that you're talking about with a novel where they lie peacefully to sleep afterwards like Mm -hmm. I I don't mean to make it sound like that Yeah, one of the things I, that I say I, about writing. Oh, you go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, one of the things that I joke about writing for Disney animation is that their demographic is very specific. It's every single person in the whole wide world. <laughs> so as long as whatever you write is it makes sense to little kids and big kids and mechanics and the French, you're great. <laughs> if they all want to come see your movie, you're golden. And and I do think this moment when you get to the inner nesting doll happens in the it's great why did you look at me quite like that it's like because i see your inner nesting doll and i want to poke I, you at didn't it. mean that shitty i know i don't mean it shitty it's, in my, it's a new expression i've learned but i like it because you in what i love about animation is the most jaded person who would sit down and watch a film and watch et go through the air and be like i'm so sure will sit and watch an animated film and completely be five years old again and we just buy into this world and your nesting doll actually is what sits down ready to see this and then by the end of one song you're just crying and and you know that we all know that moment in Toy Story 3 where we're like fuck you Michael Arndt I have like a scar on my heart from that movie and you're just in the theater and you don't even want to let your kid know like why why is life so sad why do bad things happen to good people like y'all tell you when you're older and you, but you took him to this movie and that's working that's touching every nesting doll at once in a very very short tiny window of time and that I don't know that a picture book a kid's picture book can do the same thing you know, I just wanted to say that I, I feel like the the time demand issue is is uh, it's misleading. Like I, I don't think you know people say, oh, I don't have time to read books, and then they'll sit and you know binge watch you know the new season of Orange Is the New Black and follow that up with with Game of Thrones, and it's like you have time. You you could have read War and Peace in the time it watched took you to watch those shows. Um, I think, and I think the difference, the, the real, real difference is, um, and it's it's both a you know a strength and a weakness of, of fiction is that it requires more energy. You know the there's um, the the writer is is in a collaborative project with the reader in fiction, and the reader has to bring a lot to the table. To you know, to interpret these words and create images out of those words, and and create emotions out of those words. I mean, that it's, there's a lot of demand on the reader, 
and it's not the you know it's it's not as easy as sitting on your couch and and watching something and just letting it play out in front of you there's a yeah go ahead Yeah, I, I don't know how many of you could hear that. That she's she's saying, paraphrasing very briefly, is that that you know a, a thing that fiction does is it it puts you in a consciousness. Um, is is that a appropriate way of saying it? And and whereas in in film you're you're kind of you're external to the action and you're watching it, um, but in in fiction you're. I disagree. Yeah. Go. Go yeah, no, no, you're totally in a consciousness when you when you watch film. I mean, but again, it's like you know, like here here's another thing that frustrates me. You know, we we talk about how how bad the movies are, and it's true, but it's true because not because of film filmmakers. It's it is true because of distribution in this country, and you know, the distributors are the one who are ruining the the cinematic experience for us. They are giving us. You know the the stuff that we expect that that they think is going to make big bucks. I mean, if you go to film festivals around the world, if you start watching world cinema, if you go back to you know the the fifties and the forties and the thirties and the twenties and and all this stuff and all this extraordinary you know world heritage that we have of cinema, uh, I mean, I I can find so many movies and so many filmmakers that are you know I mean you're you're really in that sort of experience. Uh, so so I think at the end of the day, yeah, I mean I I agree. I think what we have. Is is the bottom of the barrel. Every now and then, there's something really great that comes out, but it's it is not representative of the medium. True, right? There's you a know. big distinction between judging things and the worst that can be produced, or what it's yeah, what it's possible as a medium, and that's what we're talking about. Yeah, because because if we if we compare Hollywood to the best of literature. Well, yeah, you win, sure. Because, I mean, well, I would say contemporary Hollywood to the best of, of literature, you know, uh, and that's, that's just not a fair fight, you know. No. Yeah. Yeah, I, I want to go. But I want to. You you kind of dismissed the idea that that you said that films occupy a consciousness, and I want to. I want to. I want. I want you I to mean, elaborate watch. on that. And let me. Let me. Yeah. So the. I mean, to me, books. You know, the, so the first person is is infamously difficult in in film, and you know, there's there's a whole movement of modernism, or it was a movement of modernism within fiction that, that was about occupying consciousness. And, you know, there are books like Ulysses that I don't even see how you can make them, like how you can tell that story in film. Sure. Um, or or even a, you know, a more story-oriented book like um, The Good Soldier by Ford Maddox Ford, which is so much about this guy who doesn't even understand himself and, and the way he tells his story. Um, that... 
and I guess I'm curious. I mean, are there are there stories that you can only tell in film that you couldn't tell in a book? I I, I think there are. I think now what we're really talking about is is beyond the realm of stories. I think we're really talking about what what I need to start talking about is the genius filmmakers. There is no possible way in the world that you can write an Ingmar Bergman movie and turn it into an experience, a written word experience that comes close to the experience of connecting on that sort of experiential level with, with Bergman. And again, I, w- I would certainly go back to Lynch on, on that. I mean, th- those guys, I mean, talking about a consciousness, you are sharing the consciousness of those people in the most powerful, visceral, extraordinary way. I mean, your, your guts are just like on the floor by the time the movie's done. You know what I mean? It's, um, it's a, but, it's a, but it's a different medium, you know? And, and this is what's so cool about it is that, is that you can't, Film can't duplicate what literature does and, and vice versa. You know, there's actually another thing I want to say, too, is that, you know, we talk about film, but I do want to say a brief thing about graphic novels and comics, which some of you know I'm, I'm a big fan of. Uh, I think that actually as a visual storytelling medium, comics sometimes can be much greater than film. They can be far more ambitious, much, much bigger than film can ever be. So, I don't know, for what it's worth. Oh, I hate that movie. Hate that freaking movie. Hate that movie. I know most people do. Uh, boyhood. I think he feels maybe I think it was it's a, a boring, boring movie, movie. but. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'd like to just toss out two um, two things because I know you're. I mean, you're you're not here to hear us argue, really. You're here because you're interested in this. So I want to just recommend... Uh, no, you're interested in this topic. I'd like to recommend a book by, uh, of essays by Robert Boswell called The Half-Known World. Um, Bos taught a class here, tongue-in-cheek... What was the title? Is it tongue-in-cheek title was something like Everything You Need to Know About Writing Fiction in Three Hours? Except he actually did it. I mean, it, it, it was one of the most amazing... I, I'm pretty convinced he's smarter than everyone. Uh, and the half known the the title essay of this uh, collection is exactly his. Um, he he's had a number of novels adapted for film, and uh, he just had a play on off Broadway with, believe it or not, James Franco in it. And uh, uh, it, it's his thought about what the essential difference is between fiction and film, and it's a fascinating essay. And uh, uh, it won't do justice to sum it up, but I will say that when he says half known world, what he's saying is the great advantage of fiction is that it doesn't have to over-specify things. There's no way to take a picture of something and have it be underspecified. And I think this actually gets to the idea of why animation is so great. I'm, I, I just love animation. Um, about once a month, I, Kimberly's laughing, I, I say, can I watch The Incredibles again? <laughs> uh, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Better than Boyhood, even, uh, if you can believe it, Alexander. <laughs> Um, so that's one. That's just one book reference that uh, you, uh, I'd recommend everybody uh, seek out. The other is, weirdly enough, a book called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, the uh, Nobel Prize winning economist. I can't speak French, but I can drop Nobel. <laughs> um, amazingly relevant to the process of storytelling. Um, what he does is talk about how people... Uh, how people experience the world, uh, sh- and you can get a short taste of it. There's a TED Talk about happiness that he does. And one of the things he says is that there, you can think of yourself as divided into two kinds of people. There is the experiencing self, the one who's having the experience right now, but has no memory of it. 
Um, and then there's the remembering self. And, and they, the remembering self has all the power. So, when you're, uh, so a way to think about this is how, uh, what feels natural to you about speaking to your reader or audience members remembering self. What you're really, you don't care, uh, a second from now, their, ne- their experiencing self will be on, to the ne- be on to the next experience. What you're trying to do is fix something in the remembering self's mind. It's a, it's, it's, I know it sounds very esoteric, but it's a fabulous book. He's a great writer. Um, and when you read it, if you're thinking in terms of writing, it will be intuitively obvious why, why you wish you knew this stuff. Uh, there was a, I think we've organically transitioned to the, uh, the audience Q&A. David had a question back there. So, uh, I think the best screen kiss is you know, Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed in uh, It's a Wonderful Life. But they go off the script. I love film. I've written a book about film, et cetera, et cetera. But I have to come back to what, what uh, David was saying about the question of time and interiority. I don't know how many of you know Sven Burkert's book, uh, Gutenberg Elegies, where that idea is really well developed. And even though it's 20 years old, it's incredibly powerful. But one of the distinctions here, I'm just going to just describe a few things, much as I love the movies. You know, if you go to the ballet or if you go to a play or if you go to a music performance, or if you go to a film, you get the whole work. You go when you go to the movie and you see the movie, you are seeing the movie. You don't usually go and see excerpts. When you go to oh, a reading, for example, that's what I mean. You're not seeing everything that happened. But when you go to the movie, you don't go and see seven percent of the movie and go, "Hey, that was great." If you go to a reading, for example, even a poetry reading, even a reading from a book of haiku, you don't get the whole book. You can't unless. You want to stay for hours and hours and hours. The time issue really is is important. Uh, there aren't many readings where somebody gets up and says, you know, now I'm going to read my novel. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, there'd be people in coffins. <laughs> Understandably so, because because and it does have to do with that that issue of time, because it's not really a performative art and film. Again, you go and you see. Usually, you go and you see the whole thing. So that's just a descriptive comment that grows out of that. And the other one I'd say is, uh, this is from Neil Postman, you know, in Amusing Ourselves to Death, which is one of the best books I've ever read about media, even though it's 30 years old. And he points out that uh, in terms of that interiority and that difficulty and the question of how how we construct narrative in our minds with language, among other things, he says, you know, there's no such thing as, he talks about TV, but he says there's no such thing as a TV-watching disability where there is such a thing as a reading discipline. Uh, you know, nobody has courses in, you know, oh, I'm so worried about Johnny, he doesn't know how to watch television. <laughs> He's kind of, you know, but a reading really is, you know, a very, very, very complex uh, kind of activity that perhaps has a different kind of cognitive structure. That's not an argument against film, it's just, just an observation to throw in the mix and think about. That, that reminds me of a question that I wanted to ask, which was, Sort of looking at the other form, like what what makes you jealous about? I'll start with David. Like, as 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 a novelist, like when you see film, what 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 are you jealous of? Like, what do you wish you that? What do you see film do that you wish you could do in a novel? I know you're going to struggle. Um, no, well. I wish I could trap people in a room for two hours and just tell them a story and not let them leave. 
You know what I mean? I mean, just rivet them. I guess, you know, another way of thinking about this in my mind is like film is this Klieg light. And, it, and you, you, when you shine on something, you can't not look at it. It's, it's brilliant. It's riveting. It's, you know, and that visceral reaction, that, uh, that overwhelming appeal to your visual cortex is uh, I envy but on the other hand, I mean, I think fiction is the best laser pointer in the world. And it can point at things that are not just in the physical world, but are in the ideational realm. And the, uh, many of the things that I read are not descriptions of phys- the physical world. They just take an idea and make it something as tangible as something in the real world. So, I mean, uh, it's hard to say, it's hard to answer your question one way or another, because as soon as I, I would never give that up. I voted with on my with my feet on this a long time ago. But as you know, uh, uh, so as soon as I think about that Klieg light, I think now I'll take the laser pointer. What about you, Jenny? <laughs> um, I don't know. I think um, definitely what Catherine was saying about it, like having the interior monologue as opposed to having to have everything on screen is definitely a a thing that sometimes you're writing a screenplay and you're like, man, I really wish there was some way I could put this all in a screenplay where. You know, we know exactly what everyone's thinking, but I think that's a challenge that I appreciate as a screenwriter, that um, there's got to be another way to show that kind of feeling and stuff. And I think, you know, that's a challenge that I'm happy with. So I don't know. I don't know if I'd really want to change anything. (laughs) I mean, because I do both, I don't, I don't, I don't, well, yeah, those are... I, how do you decide which form to use? Like, if you've got an idea for a story, how do you decide which, like, how, you've got all these choices. How do you make a decision about that? How much time I want to spend in the story. If it's going to need that that length to explain the reason that this relationship exists and to get to the end of that relationship, how much of the internal do you need to get it across? Um, but, in, but if the story is coming visually and I know the moments that, and it's just going to be a lot of dialogue and banter, then I know, then it's probably a better screenplay. Um, one of the things that's also not fair is the size of the audience, depending on what you pick. So your, your book sells 30,000 copies. It's a massive success. Your TV show is watched by a million people. It's a failure. <laughs> you know what I mean? That doesn't seem fair. So where do you, where does that story going to get its best shot? In, in as long if you want it to last for a while um, but those of you who saw me perform yesterday from the memoir got to see what I really wish I could happen no matter what it is that I'm writing which is that I get to share with you the moment that you hear the story so that's the be- that you don't get to do that in fact you give it out which is why often with my books I say if it's something that I wish nobody I love would read it's probably a book <laughs> and then I just put it out there and I don't want to know that you read it, really, unless you're a stranger. And then I'll talk to you about it. That's fine. But, if, but the other things are going to live and be around for a while. And I have to have meetings and, like, show my face after them. <laughs> so, you know, be ready to be there. I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> I, I think what I'm, what I'm jealous of, if, if anything, it's the indulgence. Uh, <laughs> But no, but I, I, I say that I say this actually with great respect, uh, because you can indulge in in writing a novel. You cannot indulge in writing a film, and and so. But it's it's actually what I like so much about writing for film, is that you have to find a way 
to get to that, you know, nesting doll or whatever it is, you have to get to the essence in the shortest, most visual, most direct, most visceral possible way. And and I think that's such a great it's such a great exercise. So um, yeah, so that's why I choose film. Yes, there's a question. I, uh, I think the other thing, you know, we talked about music and, and music performances, you know, how does fiction handle silence and how does film handle silence? Because those moments of silence are so crucial in character development. I, yeah, sorry. No, no, no. Well, I, the, the one little thing I want to say about this is I actually, I'm one of those guys who believes also that, that uh, when, when, uh, Sound became an invention. We cinema actually lost something. Uh, if you if you start, I mean, I really encourage everybody here to watch silent f- films. Uh, some of the greatest films of all time are actually silent silent films. And and uh, and um, you know that we that was extraordinary. You know, so I think I think we lost. You know, but then again, you look at Woody Allen or Whit Stillman or some of those movies, which are really completely dialogue driven, and that's that's a, a pure pleasure as well so it's all you know it's all good you, you mentioned the idea of uh you know reading a book and then not wanting to see a movie of it because and i've, and I've had that experience it feels like the movie i've had the experience of seeing a movie made out of a book that i've seen that i've read seeing the movie and feeling like the movie made it smaller than it had been in my mind um and but it it re- related to this is the you know something that Alexander mentioned earlier, and the thing that I'm jealous of as a fiction writer, I, th- I think the first thing that Alexander was talking about was you, like you just can't create those acting moments of like Brando in Apocalypse Now. Like that's the thing I'm jealous of as a writer. The you know um, you, you mentioned Fight Club, the, the book to me that that was made into a great movie. Like they're both really great. Is um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And it's because, you know, Nicholson brings something to that story that, that just wasn't there before and is, it's, it's, it's amazing because it's very much the same story, but it, it just feels different and it feels like it's enlarged in a way. And it's not even enlarged, it's just taken in a different direction. Um, and that's, you know, that's what great filmmaking can do, I think, in my mind. Um, I, there's a question, yes, you.
Oh. Uh, the Bellatar movie? Yes. Yeah. Which is a pain to watch, but it is so mind-blowing. And then there is Krasna Harskoya, Melancholia of Resistance, which is a pain to read, but it's so beautiful. Yeah. So how do you educate your audiences to actually spend the time and the, the and to educate themselves to get to that level where, where they can appreciate a hard read or a hard watch? Yeah. Well, one, uh, I'll just jump in briefly. One way to think about it, um, Nabokov said great storytellers are great enchanters, right? So one way to think about it, um, at least the way I think about it, is what does it mean to be enchanter? It means understanding the audience member enough to open them up in the way that I described to say what you know uh, my perfect reader will put up with a lot as long as I satisfy what their needs are even if it's difficult that's not they're not worried about it being difficult they're worried about their needs being addressed in order to engage in the collaborative work of, of dealing with this difficult material. And, and so if you, if you approach it that way, it clarifies your job, either as a filmmaker or a writer. You know, I have to get them so that they can talk about this. And maybe by, I have to do that by showing them something, some spectacle, either on, in prose or you know, to, to satisfy their need for a little bit of spectacle. Or whatever it happens to be, and then you have access to the next level, and you and you repeat. Okay, can I answer that on a more broader audience perspective? Because I uh, there's a book called Everything Bad Is Good For You. That's about how we how we got smarter as viewers of television. That started from ER, Homicide, Hill Street Blues. That that now you can have. Then you could have a show like The Sopranos or The Wire, where we can handle. We demand now way more sophistication from our TV shows than we used to. We gobble them up. We would read, we would watch Orange is the New Black before we read Orange is the New Black. And the people that are mad about Game of Thrones are the people like, did you not read the books, right? Because we're, we're trained to watch these shows on a, on a bigger level. And I think you see this in YA, that we, because you start with a younger reader, now YA is way more sophisticated. You can have a, a movie that becomes as big as Hunger Games. That, you know, can you imagine not long ago saying it's a it's a it's a kids book right how they would have called YA back then when it's like SE Hinton and stuff that you wouldn't how big was the outsiders compared to what you can do now in the YA world and all the different types of stories that we're willing to tell in YA that you can talk about transgender and and all to to a to a, a demographic that was 20 years ago considered not worth the time and now not only are the books catered to that, that reader, the movies are catered to that viewer and that money. And that also didn't used to happen. So they're growing up. You were growing up becoming more sophisticated. TV shows and the kind of easy literature that we're all reading and 
Well, I, I mean, everything's like, I, I think it's, there's no point in dismissing stuff and saying it's not art. I mean, you, you need, you need people, you know, I need my son right now to read comic books so that when he's, you know, 10 years from now, he's nine now and I'm, he's reading Charlie Brown. And I think that's great because, you know, that's teaching him to, and everybody needs that. I don't, I don't know why you would dismiss you know, those stepping stones, you need those stepping, both culturally and at an individual level. Question here. Um, the video game world, you were talking about how you wanted to kind of decide on that. I have played a video game where it's like beautiful poetry, and then I get online and you hear people talking, and they're like, yeah, did you fuck that girl? Right. And I just, it's like if someone was reading a book, and I'm imagining some guy walked in while I was reading this art that was amazing and then just hearing this guy that just has the most useless shit to talk about mm-hmm. and, and I'm just wondering where is the translation between video games because there is when you play a video game they are trying to speak a message and they're trying to get to that what you were saying the inner voice to teach you but then you have all this if you've ever gone on video games, there's a clan of people. It's like a clan. And you just, sometimes you're like, where is this conversation even going? They have that in fiction, too. It's the Amazon comment section. <laughs> it's there. Every comment section. Like, do, do you have a question there? <laughs> yes. I'm saying, how do you get... Because video games have become a multi-million... Right, right. What's the question? How do you get good reading to people that, one, I think writing is a part of your mind that makes you explore deeper things, and makes you understand more. How do you explain that to a kid that just wants to play on his phone all day? Or how, how, do you get, how do you get kids to read books when video games are easier? Exactly. Um, you, you get good books. In the, I mean... I, I mean, I think I think there I think there's still a tendency in teaching to try and give kids you know stuff that's good for them, quote unquote. And you don't start there. You start with whatever engages them. You start with, um, you know, Calvin and Hobbes, or you know, just anything that gets words going through their head and that that they get interested in, and then they can build on that. To me, that's the way to do it. And you talk to them about it too, right? I mean, I mean, having that conversation, I think, is really crucial as well. And um, you know, I mean, the one thing I wanted to say as well is this idea that going back to, to I think ultimately it, it comes down to who is taking the risk to bring us the stories that we deserve, that we all deserve. You know, she, she, she mentioned a turn a horse. Not everybody wants to see that, and that's fine, you know. But I think that at the end of the day, it's, it's you know, actually uh, – uh, uh, Brian Cox recently went on record saying, I don't know if you guys saw that. I actually said on, on Facebook. Uh, he, uh, he just went on record saying, you know, um, about Hollywood that he works, that, that the Hollywood is run by people that he does not respect, you know. And uh, I don't know if that's true of the publishing industry. I know nothing really about the publishing industry. But at the end of the day, it's, it is the people who make the decision, the quote-unquote decision makers, which I actually hate that term because what does that mean, you know? Uh, but, but it's a huge responsibility, you know? I mean, those people have a tremendous amount of responsibility in terms of, you know, what they let us see 
or where they let us read and what they don't. And, um, you know, we live in a world now where there's so much talent everywhere, everywhere. And there's so many incredible writers. I mean, even in this room, you know, who are not published, who should be published as well. And that's, uh, and that's a shame. How do you change that culturally? I have no idea. David, <laughs> do you know? <laughs> Read more, watch less movies is what I'm thinking. Just kidding. No. Boo. Just kidding. No, I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Is that time? We're we're, we're out of time. So I want to, like, one question for everybody to give a brief answer to to end up on. Let's imagine an alien comes down (laughs) and he's going to answer this question for us. Which is better, fiction or film? He's going to do it. He's going to watch one movie. He's going to read one book. What movie do you give him? Well, it's easy. It's Vertigo. I mean, come on. (laughs) Jenny, what would you give him? I don't know. Come back to me. Let me think about this one for a second. Is the alien mad? Like, I want to know. <laughs> what does he want? Give him alien? Yeah, alien, sorry. <laughs> this is a warning. <laughs> Close encounters. We have movies for I mean, this alien. I guess like, the broader question is, like, what's, what's the film that, that is, you know, in your mind, what made you fall in love with film? What's a movie that made you fall in love with film? Uh, the Muppet movie. Yeah. Nice. You know... It seems to me 2001 A Space Odyssey seems like a no-brainer on this one. Yeah, an E.T. But, you know, life's like a movie. Write your own ending. (laughs) Keep believing, keep pretending, right? It's right in there. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, sir. What book would you give him, David? I really don't want to answer that question. I I have such a hard time picking. God, I'd turn him loose in my library. Honestly, I can't choose. What's my first what? Favorite book. Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. But you choose Hamlet as your book title for your novel. Weird, right? Hamlet's I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I Hamlet's a play, so it does, it's outside. <laughs> All right. We'll, uh, we'll end on that indeterminate note. Oh, what's mine? And Jenny, oh, Jenny, we'll go back to Jenny. I didn't really, well... If an alien came down and asked me, like, let's watch a movie together, I'd probably watch Bridesmaids. <laughs> like, I, like, I love Bridesmaids. It's a funny movie. I want to have a good time with the alien. And that's what I would pick. I'm sorry to disappoint Alexander. Where I'm- You're not disappointing <laughs> um, It's fun. I didn't really think about it. I would say... Uh, to me, like I would, I, w- I want something that does, like, to me, that you can occupy consciousness in fiction in a way that that to me you can't in film. I, it, film has other advantages, but to me that's a big advantage of, of fiction. And a great exhibit of that would be to the lighthouse or um, Virginia Woolf in general. But or Mrs. Dalloway would be a great example. All right, thank you guys. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. 
For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.